Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edwin Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Durkheim and Lukács. We're talking about alienation and anomie. Uh, and we're going to talk a bit about Marx too, and maybe maybe a little Hegel and Feuerbach. But mainly we're, we're talking about where alienation goes, where it goes, rather than where it comes from. More emphasis on where it goes today and how it develops. Uh, a lot of the time uh, when, we, when we think about alienation, we think about Marx's original idea of, of human beings kind of alienated from an element of their species being, alienated from some aspect of their nature. And typically the aspect that Marx is referring to is the creative aspect, the, the part of human beings which comes up with projects and executes them to completion. So Marx argues that capitalism denies us the opportunity to choose our own projects. And insofar as we uh, have projects, we aren't able to execute them to completion. And the straightforward example of this is a worker on an assembly line. The worker on the assembly line doesn't choose what they're making, and they don't get to make the whole thing from beginning to end. They just put some part in or, or play some small role in the process of making the thing. And then very often, they don't even have the funds to buy the thing that they've made, so they get no experience of it. So they have no creative authorship over it. They don't get to, to see it through, and they don't even get to use it in many cases once it's done, especially if the thing that they're making is a luxury good, right? So it, it begins as this critique of the experience, very much the experience of being an assembly line worker for Marx. And over time, alienation has developed a lot because we've tried to talk about a lot of other experiences under capitalism in the modern state, apart from just this experience of being an assembly line worker. And some of the original ideas about what it's like to be an assembly line worker can be applied more broadly. But the concept is also widened out a bit and taken in some other things. And that's kind of why we're going to talk so much about Durkheim and, and Lukács. Hmm. In terms of, of what is still in the you know, Marx's conception of alienation, there's still this, this emphasis on the separation of the individual from something that the individual needs to feel complete or whole, right? And there's still a lot of emphasis on how when you have a job under capitalism, you don't really get to pick what you do. You have to, A, take a job that is available to you on the market. That job is typically you know, created by some other person who's going to give you tasks to do, give you projects to do. Right. And so you're not going to be able to straightforwardly choose your job. You have to choose from among the set of jobs which are available to you. And those jobs are not going to give you the freedom to choose what you do with your time. You're going to be more constrained than you would ideally like to be in what you do. That said, a lot of more contemporary jobs uh, try to mitigate elements of this. So every job is not quite as straightforwardly alienating as working on an assembly line. A lot of jobs give people a little bit more room to move. 
and uh, room to do different kinds of projects. A lot of companies have realized that if they let people change their role, even you know, in an assembly line, if you let people do different jobs now and then on the line, uh, then you can mitigate some of this alienation. A lot of people have tried to build companies where people can pick their projects for themselves or, or pick different jobs from lists and change which ones they're doing or which projects or which teams they're working on. So companies have done things to try to mitigate the very straightforward kind of alienation that we see in Marx. That's not to say that they've eliminated it. There's always going to be some level of alienation in having to pick a job from the set of jobs that are available to you on the market. And even if you are then picking a task from a list of different tasks that your employer has given you as options to do or roles that your employer has given you options to, to play, that list is still given to you by the employer and, and it can't be something you creatively generate, which is why a lot of people look for self-employment, right? where they theoretically would have more control over what they're doing. The thing is, alienation runs so deep that even when you're self-employed, you don't really have full control over what you're doing because what you're doing is still dictated by market incentives. Even if you're self-employed, you can only do the kinds of work which will allow you to make money in the market. So even when you're self-employed, you are, are to some degree limited in your ability to exercise your creativity by what has instrumental value to the market, right? So there's an element of that original Marxist critique which still flows through alienation as it's used today. But then there's a lot of other stuff that's come into it. And Durkheim, who uh, the French sociologist from the 19th century. Durkheim is, is often not thought of as uh, a radical theorist. M many times people paint Durkheim as a conservative because of Durkheim's position within structural functionalism. Uh, structural functionalism is this idea that social systems tend to develop practices on the basis of what they kind of evolutionarily need to continue to exist and to function. So when Durkheim looks at any cultural or social practice, Durkheim's question is, what function does that have? How does that help the society as a whole to continue, right? Now, a lot of people look at this and go, well, how, how can Durkheim's view explain change or explain disruption? Because if every role has a function, then how is it that we could end up with dysfunction? If every cultural practice has a, has a function, how, how would that explain change? Now, of course, the, the answer to this is that there must be some contradictions that can emerge in a system where different things which are functional, uh, nonetheless, don't fit together very well and pull apart, right? And those kinds of contradictions are heavily emphasized in the Marxist literature. But Durkheim, by emphasizing how things uh, do nonetheless attempt to fit together and not just pull apart in contradiction, Durkheim is able to get at some stuff that tends to be downplayed a little bit in the Marxist tradition. And I think the term that really grasps a lot of what Durkheim is adding is anomie, right? So for Durkheim, the problem very often in society is not that you are in a role which doesn't allow you to exercise your creativity. The problem is that you aren't in a role in the first place and don't feel useful, don't feel like you have a purpose, right? Uh, and don't feel like what you're doing is useful 
or valuable doesn't make you feel like you have a place, right? So for Durkheim, this emphasis, you have this big modern state, you know, this big massive thing, uh, and you feel very small in it, and you feel like what you're doing doesn't really matter. And oftentimes you don't have something to do, right? And this comes out of capitalism and uh, to some degree because capitalism constantly changes the roles in our society, constantly changes you know, what people are doing. You can't just pick a job and stay in that job over the course of your whole career, especially now, especially in more recent period of capitalism. You can't just pick something and stay at it and have stability. And a lot of contemporary Marxists are talking about precarity, talking about this lack of stability under capitalism and the psychological harm that it can cause to people because they think that they're in a role and then suddenly that role is gone and they don't have a purpose and they don't feel they have value. The discussion of deaths of despair in left-wing and Marxist thought more recently focuses on these middle-aged people who find their role and their whole sense of purpose pulled out from under them. You talk about things like uh, Oftentimes, when we think of a midlife crisis, we think of someone who's tired of their career and is burned out. But there's also this, this alternative possibility of someone who suddenly finds that the roles that they expected to play throughout their life have, have gone away. Their job has gone away. Maybe their marriage has gone away. Maybe their uh, children are, are they're no longer seeing their children because they're divorced. And so the roles that they were expecting to play to get a sense of purpose and meaning out of life those roles have kind of vaporized, and they're suddenly very alone without the roles that they rely on for a sense of purpose and a sense that things are okay and stable and they're going to be fine, right? Hmm. But, but that is anomie. That's lack of a role rather than straightforward alienation in Marx's sense, which involves being in an overly restrictive or limiting role. And these two things have been conflated a lot in more contemporary discussions of alienation. Increasingly, when we talk about alienation, we're often talking about the disruption that comes from lack of role and from mm. precarity. We're talking about anomie, and we're making a more Durkheim argument than we maybe realize that we're doing. Uh, we're not talking as much about lack of opportunity to ex exercise creativity because we're in a rigid role. Mm. And that's in part why a lot of people who you know, don't have a role uh, can even find things in common with certain rich people who are bored, right? So a lot of movies are about bored rich people, about rich people who can't come up with anything to do. And so you see this with celebrities where they go through many, many spouses and they... Uh, go through many, many houses, they move around all the time and they re reconfigure their life every few years. Uh, and then it all comes apart again and they can't find, they can't find roles. They've got all of this money, but they, and they have all this time theoretically to think and contemplate life, but nonetheless, there's dysfunction because they don't, they, they don't find a purpose that is satisfying for them. You see it with actors, you see it with all kinds of celebrities and a lot of regular people, even though they don't have that money and live, uh, a much less secure life materially, often find that they have something in common with this sense of purposelessness mm -hmm. and this sense that things are not, that they don't have a role to play that is, uh, that can give them meaning, a stable role that can give them meaning. You know, just like the, the professional athlete who retires and then doesn't have a purpose mm -hmm. or the 
uh, artist who has kind of lost the touch and doesn't have a purpose. The ordinary person who's lost the job and doesn't have a purpose or who has gotten divorced and doesn't feel they have a purpose in the same way that they did. There's a lot of continuity in those kinds of experiences, even though they come from quite different sides of the class structure. Mm. And connected to this, we also want to talk about uh, Lukács. But before we talk about Lukács, I want to give Edmund a chance to come in yeah, Edmund, I know that you find Durkheim particularly interesting. Hmm. What do you what do you find most fun about Durkheim? Yeah, well, I think that one of the really interesting things about Durkheim is this um you were mentioning the the interpretation of Durkheim as a conservative. I think there is some merit in this interpretation, but of course it doesn't say everything that we need to know about Durkheim. The sense in which it is useful is that um, Durkheim seems to place a premium on social stability, um, and not any particular kind of social formation, but just the existence of social ties and rules that bind people together and um, keep body and soul together, as it were. So Durkheim isn't looking for um, um, the kinds of social formation that might provide some kind of you know, ideological satisfaction to someone. He's just looking for some kind of society that can bring the level of stability and um, social interaction necessary for you know, living a decent human life. Um, and I think there are a lot of respects in which this um, attitude, which could be labelled a conservative attitude, is quite merit-worthy um, because Durkheim finds um, in his study of the causes of suicide uh, two really important causes to be, on the one hand, anomie, which he defines as insufficient regulation of people's lives, and egoism, which is insufficient integration of individuals uh, within society. And the connection between these two things is, uh, quote, society's insufficient presence in individuals. And Durkheim traces this um, to a cult of man, where the individual is the, quote, single remaining object of value. And this critique of individualism goes hand in hand with his analysis of anomie. Um, Durkheim isn't saying that the individualism is the root cause of it, but the individualism tells us that we're living in a society which has become, well, too asocial. Um, uh, I, I guess, in this sense, Durkheim uh, is a good reminder of some of the themes uh, coming out earlier on in modernity about whether uh, human beings are social or not social, and whether they are selfish, as Hobbes argued, or uh, not innately selfish, as uh, Rousseau argued. Um, and perhaps the answer is something along the lines of Kant's answer, or at least this is the dominant answer in modernity. 
what characterizes the human condition is asocial sociability, the ability to work with others, but in a fairly strained and tense way and in a very fragile way. And it's quite easy for the bonds that bind people together to break. And Durkheim is analyzing a society, um, his data drawn from uh, 19th century Europe, um, that is plagued by, on his analysis, um, not just rampant individualism, but the rampant isolation of individuals that underpins that individualism. Uh, so when people are isolated from one another, uh, they are um, have a higher proclivity on Durkheim's analysis to egoistic suicide, which is when there aren't enough social ties binding people together. Um, and so it's kind of puzzling in a way, I think, why people focus on the anime side of things, because in a way what's uh, one of the uh, key causes of suicide on this account is the egoism that flows from not having enough social bonds. And uh, that is just as prominent, um, if not uh, you know, more prominent in Durkheim's account um, than the other causes of suicide are. And some of the other causes of suicide include uh, fatalistic suicide, which flows from uh, too many rules, just as anime flows from too few rules or insufficiently strong rules, and not enough regulation, whereas fatalism is too much regulation. And you've also got altruistic suicides, which flow from there being uh, too much um, integration. So you've got excessive uh, integration. Um, altruistic suicides, insufficient um, integration, uh, egoistic suicides, uh, excessive regulation, fatalistic suicides, and insufficient regulation, anomic suicides, anime, literally meaning normlessness, um, but I guess more generally meaning the, the insufficient um, presence of uh, social norms and rules in people's lives. Um, which is often caused by people being thrown into unknown situations, um, either a kind of crisis, um, perhaps an economic crisis where their expectations are disappointed and they don't know how to deal with a new situation because they don't have a rule book for how to navigate uh, the deprivation that they're thrown into. Um, but it can also be caused simply by... Um, not having enough, being in a, in a social situation which isn't necessarily a crisis situation, when there aren't enough um, rules about what one's social role are. Uh, and Durkheim looks at different social groups to try to tease out um, what the causes of suicide are. One of the observations he makes is about um, uh, suicides among Protestants versus suicides among Catholics. And he finds uh, greater propensity towards suicides among Protestants than Catholics. And there is some a lot of statistical critique of Durkheim's analysis here, because he's kind of assuming that his regional data applies to uh, both individuals and to uh, larger aggregates. Um, but there is there have been some studies since then which suggest there is some uh, there is some backing to this. Uh, and Durkheim argues that Protestantism um, or suggests that Protestantism allows individuals uh, 
somewhat more freedom, or at least Protestantism by nature is more fragmentary than Catholicism is. Because um, not only do you have the main branches, but you have nonconformist branches, and this allows more uh, freedom of thought to some degree, at least when you look at it at the aggregate level. And so you would expect there to be more fragmentation, more isolation, more alienation. Now, he's not saying Protestantism is the cause of all this, though uh, I guess an interesting parallel here is between Durkheim's analysis of suicides among Protestants and Weber's argument um, that Protestantism is one of the um, springs of capitalist development, um, uh, which we might come on to in later episodes, uh, and the idea that individualism is some kind of uh, connected between these two things. Um, yeah, anything that breaks up the roles yeah. is, is a, and capitalism really breaks up the roles. And, and so does Protestantism insofar as Protestantism breaks up the connection to the church and the rootedness of the church's account of, of religion. Mm. Uh, in the same way, capitalism breaks up the rootedness of the European class structure, the, the rigidity of it and the clarity that it provides. And of course, this is something that is celebrated by Marx. Marx likes the fact that capitalism disrupts and breaks these things up. He likes that. He's still critical of the of the roles that it creates, but he likes the fact that it breaks up the the stability of the of the feudal system because that stability had turned into a rigidity mm. and had and had become uh, very stifling to the productive forces and of course to individuals because yeah. uh, right so there's a lot of emphasis on on individualism and the thing about left wing politics and and mark Marxists and anarchists is that there's always this tendency to want to go after structure, mm. right? Uh, especially for, for anarchists, there's this tendency to want to go after the system of division of labor, to go after social roles, to deconstruct, 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 right? Mm. Uh, deconstructing all the different roles in society wherever you can find them. And one of the ways in which left-wing thought has developed over the last 150 years or so has been in this very deconstructive direction, where Wherever you find a role, take it apart. Wherever you find a role, shatter it. And the point that Durkheim makes is that when you do that, you create a lot of anomie. Yeah. And that anomie doesn't necessarily, you know, I think a lot of the time Marxists go, yeah, creating alienation through disruption will potentially lead to revolution. But I don't think that's necessarily the case because anomie is a little different. Insofar as people who are experiencing anomie are looking for a role which will give them rules that they can follow. They're looking for a clarity and stability. And revolutions create more instability and less clarity and, and make the problem worse hmm. in many ways for someone who's experiencing anomie. Yeah. And so what we tend to get from people with anomie is authoritarianism very often. Yeah. And a search for clarity of purpose. Now, sometimes left-wing movements have been able to make use of that. Uh, the Leninists, for instance, are able to give people clarity and a position and a structure and stability in a role. And I think that a big part of why the Soviet Union got off the ground in the first instance is the degree to which the Soviet Union catered not to the desire to get rid of alienation. Many of the roles that people had in the Soviet Union were plenty alienating in Marx's sense. But because of their attempt to get rid of anomie, to get rid of instability, and particularly the instability which came out of the Russian Revolution and which came out of the reforms by uh, Tsar Alexander, which eliminated feudalism and, and serfdom, 
hmm. in Russia. These things were very destabilizing. And so the, the kind of rigid structure of the Soviet Union with its clarity of roles and purposes is quite appealing in that kind of context. Well, and, yeah. and similarly, when we are talking about people who are experiencing alienation in the broad sense now, very often we're talking about people who are experiencing anomie and are not going to be attracted to political movements which are looking to further deconstruct the roles. They're looking for movements that will shore up the roles or give them new roles. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that that emphasis on regulations and roles, those things kind of go hand in hand because where do you get your set of rules? Where do you get your set of regulations? Well, they come out of a role. Mm, but if roles mm. are not stable, if we don't have stable roles or we don't recognize roles, or if someone tries to play a role, if we treat their attempt to play a role as a conservative move that uh, maintains the status quo, uh, if we don't let people play roles, it becomes very difficult because what can we be other than roles? Yeah, uh, yeah. People have yeah. a very hard time being apart from roles. And I, I'd say that you know, there are, there are are attempts to formulate a way of being in the world without roles. I, I think Buddhism and, and Eastern philosophy has focused very much on uh, trying to be just a spontaneous part of the universe without playing any particular kind of human social role. Uh, you know, the Zen tradition, for instance. Uh, uh, but that's not something that works for everybody. Despite efforts to popularize those kinds of approaches and attitudes to life, it's not something that is readily doable for everybody. Mm. And it's also not something which is consistent with having a functioning society in Durkheim's sense. It's not something which is consistent with, uh, say, the theory of history in Marx's sense, with ever-increasing productivity. If people refuse to play roles and engage in a kind of uh, Buddhist withdrawal from production and withdrawal from playing the game of, of social roles, that kind of Zen spontaneity or Taoist spontaneity, then you don't have an increase in the productive forces. So the, the society can't permit that solution, uh, even insofar as it might be possible to pursue it, the society can't pursue that. That's incompatible with the society continuing to develop mm. productivity. Mm. Instead, the society has got to find ways of inducing people to feel stressed about their lack of roles so that they'll pursue a role. Mm. And the pursuit of roles fuels capitalism because much of what is happening under capitalism is the creative destruction which occurs when people who don't really have roles or are deeply satisfied by overly restrictive roles try to create new roles for themselves. The entrepreneurial behavior is a rebellion against either being in too stultifying a role or rebellion against being roleless. Mm. Because what the entrepreneur is doing is trying to make their own role. Mm. Right? The, and the entrepreneur is governed by the market and governed by what the market is willing to pay for. So the entrepreneur is not fully free to construct a role, but is, is free to construct a role within the constraints of what the market will permit. Mm. And so capitalism offers this kind of uh, false way out of entrepreneurship where you appear to be able to make your own role or, or self-employment where you appear to be able to make your own role. Um, but all of this is, is different from the way that I think a lot of people on the left expect alienation to go. Mm. 
because so much of it is a quest for a role. And this is where I think Lukács is really very, very helpful. All right. So Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist, comes a bit later, 20th century, you know, writing around the time of the Russian Revolution and then going forward uh, through the mid-century period and uh, into the period of the Hungarian uprising against the Soviet Union. And I think 1956, uh, hmm. you know, Lukács was involved in that, though he gets let off the hook because of his, his fame and, and importance to theory. Lukács is quite significant because of Lukács' theory of reification. So for Lukács, the capitalist subject to some degree wants to, you know, is aware on some level that they're not really free to exercise their creative impulses, right? They're aware of, of an alienated condition, but they don't really want to see it. There's an attempt to repress this because to be fully aware of your alienated condition leads to a lot of psychological distress. So one of the points I, I often make to students is that being a Marxist is not a fun worldview, because if you are a Marxist, then you are seeing a lot of uh, labor relationships as forms of slavery. So you're seeing a lot of the people around you engaged in forms of slavery, which they're concealing from themselves or not aware of, right? Because of a kind of totalitarian ideology, which gets them to accept this as, as, as okay, mm. right? That's a difficult worldview to live in. It's very depressing to live there. And I think that's why a lot of people, while they may have a Marxist period, eventually abandon it because it's painful. It's painful to have that worldview. It's very mm -hmm. distressing and it's hard to live like that for long periods mm. of time. So to avoid having to confront that very unpleasant reality and live in it, we reify our social roles. We tell ourselves that these social roles are who we are, right? That that's who we are and there's nothing else that we are really beyond that. So we make ourselves dependent on the social roles, right? Now, that works if we have social roles that are stable. And in the mid-century period, in the period that uh, you know, Lukács uh, begins to, to live through and, and discuss, uh, we start creating these very fixed roles, right? And these roles allow people to kind of hide from themselves the degree to which they are still enmeshed in a system where they don't have creative uh, autonomy, right? Where they're not able to uh, act in a philosophical way or act in a as a, as a free craftsman or something like that. And this kind of quest for, to, to make ourselves, you know, reification is treating an abstraction as if it were real, treating a kind of notion, right? Um, you know, being trapped in a, in a notion or a, a wrong perception, right? Uh, that's what reification is, treating a wrong perception or false notion or, or, or an abstraction as if it were real, right? And so when we're reifying our social roles, we are treating those roles as if they are real and therefore treating ourselves as if we are the role, which means to lose the role is incredibly psychologically disruptive, right? Mm. Now, Lukács is trying to find a way of getting us to kind of reach a point where we will recognize that these roles are, are false and throw them away because we are, are chained up psychologically in these roles that we've become psychologically dependent on and enmeshed with and entangled with. So he's looking for us to kind of uh, reach a moment where it becomes too readily apparent to us that these roles are just roles that are constraining and a form of, of slavery and so on. 
But it's worth also considering the possibility that a person who is very ensnared in roles and is using them as a kind of coping mechanism for life, uh, such a person will, when confronted with this reality that the role is not who they are, run from that reality and try to get another role, Mm. try to get another source of stability. And indeed, that seems a lot easier than living in uh, in Marxism, living it with the knowledge that you are being subordinated and subjugated, and that all of the roles that you could choose that might give you a sense of purpose would also be things which would uh, play into that subjugation. It's a very difficult thing to choose. Hmm. And so instead, what tends to happen is that when you are confronted with that, uh, the, the, the tendency is to try desperately to find another role, find, uh, try desperately to find another function or purpose, right? Mm. And of course, since you're living under capitalism, you tend to be choosing from within the menu of what capitalism offers. And so this means that the more creative destruction we have, the more we exchange the roles out and change them. And as capitalism develops and it moves more rapidly, it changes the roles very quickly. So it keeps people constantly looking and searching for roles, right? And in the search for roles, they're searching to satisfy the system, to play into the system. And only through satisfying the system by finding a role in the system will they receive the means of subsistence and will they receive the psychological protection of the role. Hmm. Right? So a lot of the time when we get to a point where people are made to confront the unreality of their roles, they do not react by then trying to have a revolution and... uh, transcend capitalism, they instead react by trying to either restore the roles that we've taken away in a kind of reactionary direction, or they try to create new roles, right? In a kind of entrepreneurial lean into it direction, right? Mm. And neither of those gets you straightforwardly out of capitalism or out of the modern state. And I think that a lot of the more more recent Marxist thought, which has looked to alienation as the engine for escaping capitalism, has made the mistake of of conflating anomie and alienation together and and of not recognizing that very often we are actually dealing with a lot of anomie. And therefore, the reactions of people are going to be very different. And, And Lukács, while he was looking for a way out, also really helps us to understand why it's very difficult to get out because this drive for reification is a drive to be psychologically satisfied by a role, which, and as Marx points out in the theory of alienation, the role will itself alienate us from our creative capacities, but we have to reify the role to protect ourselves from the reality of the exploitation. Hmm. So we have to retreat into the role because without the role, we are left to confront the giant modern state and all of its totality and the system of capitalism and all of its totality and our individual impotence against all of that. Mm. And I think at the time that Lukács is writing, there's more of a possibility that there might be some kind of large scale movement of awakening that springs up in the 20th century. There's all this discussion of how you could get a kind of moment where people, uh, you know, 
throw down the roles and, and recognize the alienation and, and they're tired of it. They won't take it anymore. Mm. But it, it's harder to see that in the contemporary context because of the decline of civil society organizations. And in a way, it's, it's because there's even more anomie now than there was in the mid-century period uh, or certainly the early 20th century. There's even more anomie. The roles change even faster. They're even less stable. Deconstruction has hit more elements of social life. Mm. And this, this leads to a lot of reactionary behavior and a lot of entrepreneurial behavior, but not very much revolutionary behavior. Right, right. Because if anime goes hand in hand with egoism, as Durkheim suggests, then the reaction to having um, insufficient um, presence of, of society in people's lives um, m might just be um, uh, a flight to uh, deepening reification. Uh, in a way, Lukács um, is identifying reification as a way in which alienation is dealt with. Um, so when you're trapped in a role or um, being, uh, you know, in, in a sense, roleless or deprived of um, sufficient regulation or integration, um, then there might be a tendency to escape that situation um, in, 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 in stories or fancies that kind of provide comfort. Um, right. Reification is a kind of Stockholm syndrome. When you're stuck in a role, by reifying that role and, and saying that role is me, then you can love the role that is your prison. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, at least reification is as used by Lukács. And of course, reification is broadened out a lot in the way that it's used in political theory. Nowadays, people use reification or reifying to refer to any instance in which someone takes a concept or a notion and treats it as real. Mm. Right. So people talk about reifying race or reifying gender uh, or reifying class, even uh, treating an abstraction as if it were real and forgetting that it's just an abstraction that is a tool to be used to describe a state of affairs. It's a funny thing. It, it, originally, it was the other way around that it was treating a state of affairs as if it were a pure abstraction. Yeah. Rather than treating an abstraction as if it were a state of affairs. Oh, yeah, you're right. That is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Because it began with Marx saying that um, the fetishism of commodities is where the definite relation, the definite social relation between men themselves assumes here um, for them the fantastic form of a relation between things, um, which is to say that it's treating. Um, um, oh, actually, that's a, that's a, that's also another one. Treating treating social relations as if it were just relations between objects and, and treating human beings as things to be used. Yeah, that's a good point. Reification comes out of commodity fetishism in Marx. Mm. The commodity fetishism being treating something as as if it really were just a commodity. Yeah, yeah. So you got those those kind of in a way those are yeah three different things treating. Yeah, treating people as things, and then treating, you know, things that are, and then in in Marx, and then in Lukács, treating, um, treating something um, social as if it weren't social, as if it were divinely ordained or kind of simply natural. 
and then um, the contest over whether um, you're kind of abstracting something that isn't abstract um, or today treating something abstractive as, as if it were a thing when it's not. Um, of course, I mean, one origin of all this, um, if you, we go before Marx, is uh, the notion of alienation in Hegel and some of his followers. So uh, Hegel described uh, the alienated spirit as split between the secular um, and the divine, um, as a split between is and ought. And uh, Feuerbach, uh, one of the uh, radical uh, Hegelians um, in Marx's period, was writing that religion is like this, where um, religious belief projects onto a divine figure human characteristics, and so alienates what it means to be human by projecting it onto something, uh, onto an inanimate object or subject. And um, Marx says that Feuerbach's analysis is great, it just needs to be um, deepened. Um, by looking at how alienation also takes place in modern industry, in capitalism, just as it took place under feudalism, but although in a different way. Yeah, and, and so to some degree, you could even see some of these earlier conceptions of alienation as kind of repudiations of dualism. Yes, yes. Yeah, and and therefore as assertions of the dialectic or of the you know the search for golden means as we often yeah. uh, refer to. It. I kind of find that the most interesting aspect of alienation, the notion that alienation is division, it is dualism, it is if you think about yeah. the the name treating something as alien to oneself when uh, and the notion of when you're critiquing something as oh that's alienation, the notion is that well it's silly to alienate things because there's no such thing as aliens <laughs> in a way. Saying something is alien is saying that it's separate, but as nothing is separate on a deep level, uh, there really are no aliens. Uh, there are just aspects of the of of the whole, aspects of the one from which we spring. Right, and those aspects are are construct co human concepts that we have constructed. Yeah, to for the utility of being able to speak about stuff. Yeah. But if we forget that we have constructed them for the utility of being able to speak about stuff, because when we speak about stuff, we speak in discrete words, and therefore to speak in discrete words is necessarily to make separations. Yeah. And if we think about the origins and if we of- treat yeah. those separations too seriously, yeah. and this is why language itself is kind of a problem for getting at reality. Yeah. Yeah. Because language works in bits. Yeah. Yeah. And if we think about the, the use of the term alien over time, that people used to use the term alien to just refer to people from different parts of the world. And now people use the word alien to refer to people from different planets. Well, maybe sometime in the future, if civilization lasts that long, lasts that long then people will look back at this age of referring to people from other planets um, uh, you know, uh, as alien, as quaint, because treating people um, who, who may or may not exist um, as uh, alien on other planets is just as as ridiculous as treating people, other people on Earth, as alien um, because nothing's well, really or, alien. Or treating different aspects of the self as alien. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, now yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about Freud actually, and um, yeah, yeah. Freud's Freud's tripartite distinction between the id, the ego, and the superego, yeah. and, and Freud, of course, is writing around a similar time. So I feel like bringing him in is not. 
uh, too anachronistic. Um, but Freud, in, in, in talking about the superego, the superego for Freud is the part which uh, is, is self-critical, the, the part which goes after the self for failing to live up to various social standards. It's kind of the voice of the outsider, right? Mm. The, the voice of, the, of society which lives in your head. Yeah, Durkheim's right? regulation which, and integration in a way. Right, which you've, which you've internalized. Yeah. And the superego is to some degree kind of predicated on this idea that we can form a split from ourselves inside where we uh, ha take on the point of view of society and criticize ourselves with ourselves, right? And Freud accomplishes this conceptually by breaking the, the person into different parts so that one part can be used to pick on the other parts. The superego can be used to go after the id with the ego as mediator, right? Hmm. But th this kind of supposes an ability to make a split within the self so that the self can judge the self or the self can correct the self, right? And you see this in a lot of uh, Western accounts of, of the self as kind of split between different parts with some parts governing or going after other parts, right? But of course, you know, if you look at somebody like Plato, the, the, there has to be a unity of everything for Plato. And so these divisions that you're erecting are allegorical. They're stories that are to get at elements of how people operate, but don't refer to real divisions which actually exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're allegorical. It's not as if in, in the mind there is actually a superego and an ego and an id, which all sit separately from each other and all interact with each other as separate discrete elements. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's not like if you looked inside the brain, you'd find these things. Yeah. But these terms can be useful for describing processes that go on, right? And so a lot of the time when we're talking about getting out of alienation and getting out of, of uh, stultifying roles, very often people are, are trying to get past the superego and, and to get out of the superego's control so that the ego can, can be dominant, right? So a lot of people are thinking about it in terms of allowing the individual to kind of run free without society as, as a constraint, right? Yeah. But I think that to a, to a significant degree, this is all predicated on reifying the individual mm -hmm. as separate from society in the first instance. So to suppose that there is a superego and that society kind of it imposes upon the individual is to suppose a duality between society and the individual yeah 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 which is then mediated through this this set of set of parts inside right and that's why when you talk about the superego uh the ego and the id uh, there's a lot of this mediation between the individual and the collective that's going on in freud's work there right yeah and that that's very distinctive of modernity but if you were to look at say plato's chariot allegory right with the if people remember back from the phaedrus where there's the reasonable part of the soul, which is the rider, the light horse, which is the spirited part interested in status, and the dark horse, which is the uh, desirous part interested in pleasure. Mm. You know, will I, if, you, if you look at that, the discussion there is not of, uh, say, society per se. It's not about the individual versus society. Yeah. It's about these kind of different drives, which are all uh, all pointing toward a, a kind of unity 
right? And it's about getting all of this stuff to feed into a unity rather than about emancipating the individual from the collective. Yeah. Because Plato's goal is, while Plato wants us to do philosophy, for Plato, if we do philosophy, then we will, of course, realize that doing philosophy requires having a city and being part of a city and a kind of education process, which is only possible in a particular kind of city. So it depends very much on being part of, you know, of, of the city. So any kind of distinctive thinking, which seems to be individual, nonetheless comes out of something which is highly collective. And so therefore, what really is the difference between individual and collective? What we are calling individual is, is a kind of symptom of collective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what we are calling collective is, 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 how we describe the aggregate behavior of the it could be how we describe the aggregate behavior of individuals, but by the same token, what we describe as individual are faces or expressions of of the collective, uh, of of the one of the unity which exists at at, at that level. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a, a big part of how we get ensnared in this role game is through this division that we create, both between the individual and the collective and between the individual and the individual's conscience, which is the kind of voice of the collective or voice of the socialization in the individual. Right. Mm. These are ways of kind of, you know, the person who doesn't have a role is, is being told that they're you know, not useful unless they have a role that they uh, have to have a role to have value. And so when they don't have a role or when their role is, is precarious, instead of going, ah, see, the roles were all just a, a mirage this whole time. You know, I was never a peasant. I you know, was never a, a just, just a, a mother or a father or a husband or a wife. I was always far, far beyond just these roles. That isn't what happens. Instead... The, the superego, the voice of society says, if you don't have a role, if you don't conform to a role, you don't have value. And the only way of rebelling against that is the assertion of the individual against society, right? So when we said that the responses tend to be entrepreneurship or a kind of reactionary response to retreat into uh, or try to defend or revive the roles that have been lost, right? Where entrepreneurship is create new roles and the reactionary response is to to build a fortress around the decaying rules or to try to revive them in some way. Mm. Uh, those two responses are are very akin to you know either the the retreat into the individual or the attempt to assert the stultifying collective, right? Yeah. Either you retreat into asserting the roles, really asserting them and getting very defensive about the roles. Or you retreat into valorizing the creative destruction and and the ripping apart of the roles. And I don't think that Marxist theory has been immune from this. I think that if you look at most Marxist and critical uh, theorists, they have tended to, and anarchists, they've tended to celebrate the ripping down of the roles. Or conversely, you've got a, a more conservative tradition, often a conservative tradition that's influenced by critical theory or Marxism, people like Christopher Lash, for instance, who get very into celebrating the roles and the stability that the roles bring. Yeah. And that that becomes a trap which comes out of thinking about the individual and the collective as separate. 
and which comes out of the kind of central preoccupation of modernity, which is about trying to resolve a dualism, which is a reification. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think none of it has really, really properly worked because you can't be emancipated while being heavily constrained by rigid roles, but you also can't be emancipated by being uh, cut loose when you have been uh, socialized heavily to be psychologically dependent on roles. Yeah. And so any alternative to this just becomes new roles just becomes reinscribing. And this is how a lot of people talk about it. They talk about, well, of course we have to have roles. So uh, you know, what, how should we make the roles different? How should we change them? Yeah. And a lot of the deconstruction then becomes the assertion of other roles, but without a recognition that that's what's being done, right? And yeah. oftentimes it's by different people. There's someone engaged in the deconstruction process, but the more you deconstruct the roles, the more necessary it becomes for new roles to emerge. Yeah. So in periods of heavy deconstruction, those are the periods when there will be an assertion of a quite heavy-handed set of new roles. Yeah, I, th I think this is largely what's going on with gender right now. There's been a lot of deconstruction of gender, and it's producing both a kind of entrepreneurial behavior attempts to create and assert new roles, and a lot of reactionary behavior attempts to defend existing roles. Mm. And both elements in that debate feel very constrained by one another. And the same thing goes on with, uh, especially with the working class and and union union workers who uh, formerly had jobs in manufacturing, as those roles go away, there is a kind of political movement to defend those roles and a creative destruction movement, which says, go out, create new roles, uh, learn to code, and so on. And neither of those movements in, in any of those cases really gets it at what we need, uh, because both of them are a kind of attempt at reification. They're either an attempt to uh, to protect from the instability by reasserting the traditional norms, or an attempt to protect from the instability by asserting new dogmas that are just as rigid and constraining as the ones which uh, previously were dominant. Yeah. And the issue is that because it's a, in, in, a lot of the time, what we're having now is a cultural debate. We're having a cultural debate about what our attitude should be to capitalism and what our attitude should be to the state, rather than a political debate about what we should be doing or how society should be organized. Right. So much of the debate, even even about class, so even about say the, uh, you know, what should happen with union workers who used to work in manufacturing, a lot of that is about what should their attitude be culturally to the instability in the economy. Should they be go-getters who move around and learn to code? Or should we try to protect them from that instability and try to get back the stability that they used to have? It's about what their attitude should be. And it's not really about doing very much because I mean, the politicians who run on protecting them don't do a whole lot to bring those jobs back, but they cathartically uh, mirror the frustration with the departure of those jobs. So do you want the politician to be kind of cathartically mirroring your frustration with change? Or do you want the politician to be uh, demanding that people move on and and become different and find new roles and make new roles? Uh, as impractical as that might be for large numbers of people who don't have the material 
situation necessary to do that, don't have the skills or the education uh, or the social capital or the mobility necessary to do that. And we, we kind of have gotten into this, this agonistic cultural, you know, what should our attitude be discussion. And both positions really presume the continuing of the system which drives the change. And if, if capitalism and the modern state are givens, then you can't really change the process. You can't really change what's going to happen. And therefore, all you can do is decide what your attitude to it will be yeah. and whether you'll play defense or offense in response to it. But most people are, are not psychologically equipped to do both of those things, uh, not educationally equipped, not materially equipped to do both of those things. Some people are in position where they can be aggressive and entrepreneurial, and other people are in positions where they have to be protective and defensive. Uh, and the insistence that we all kind of culturally conform to either a zealous uh, lust for the chaos uh, and, and willingness to go into it to try to come out of it, or a zealous uh, defense of the existing role infrastructure. Um, both of those are, it, it becomes a kind of culture war over what our attitude should be to rapidly changing roles. Yeah, yeah. And the culture war on, in both directions comes from this need to reify the roles to avoid having to confront the, the exploitative character of the system. Yeah, yeah. And both become ways of perpetuating the thing instead of changing the thing. Yeah, and I guess that economic exploitation and cultural reification go hand in hand because what they're both doing is getting people out of social and political relations. They're creating uh, social egoism and political anime. They're weakening the power of political rules over people's lives and as well as the power of uh, social uh, roles, or at least that they're weakening the the presence of these things in people's lives and um, separating them from their roles, separating them from their roles, or just straightforwardly identifying with them. In a way, what it's doing is just creating imbalance. It's making us treat social relations, as Lukacs argued, as if they were uh, uh, simply uh, natural or simply. Um, divinely ordained, it's um, creating an imbalance in order to distract us from the, 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 the mutability of social situations, but also the stability in them. It's doing both things at the same time. And I guess alienation, reification can be a bit confusing in that way, because you can think of um, alienation both as um, making people's lives uh, more rigid and more flexible at the same time, and reification, uh, making people see the world both as more solid and as uh, more uh, vaporous than it really is. Uh, because in a way, the thing, the thread that runs through all this is, um, as Durkheim was pointing out, excess and deficiency. Um, and what is the cause of having excesses and deficiencies of something, well, in a way, the concept of alienation implies that it's the separation of uh, things like politics and morality and politics and economics that can cause imbalance. Because when you separate things, uh, you cease to see them as 
reconcilable. So you swing from one to the other. It creates an us versus them mentality um, uh, where you separate one thing from another thing. And one concept is the friend concept, and the other concept is the enemy yeah, Schmitt, concept. Yeah, and you develop yeah. a kind of intellectual Schmittianism yes. when you when you make that kind of dualistic split. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Ed. Well, it, I was going to say that one another split that we can see going is just as um, we can see alienation as a psychological phenomenon. Phenomenon. We can also see it as a sociological phenomenon where different things get separated. So you can see the modern state separating politics and morality in the early modern period as kind of Machiavelli described the state not being a moral enterprise and then capitalism um, arising from a separation between um, politics and economics uh, from the 18th century onwards. And uh, these two sociological divisions um, of the modern state and capitalism give rise to the psychological alienation that uh, Durkheim and uh, Lukács uh, describe, though Durkheim is doing a sociology, uh, ad admittedly. Um, so we can see how uh, Hegel's self-alienated spirit, which is where this whole discussion about alienation in a way begins, uh, springs from self-alienated structure. So divided structure gives rise to divided spirit. And the best way of dividing people's souls is to d divide the states they live in. Um, the, the, in Plato's language, the divided city is a recipe for the divided soul and vice versa. Oh, you, you put that very nicely. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. What were you going to say just before, Benjamin? Well, what was I going to say just before? You put that so well. I really like that. My mind is kind of caught on, on how nice that was. <laughs> well, my mind's been caught on your description of roles in modernity too. Because I think it's, oh, all, well, I think it's, I, I think it's also, com I think it's completely true that the way in which people relate to roles, either seeing the roles as something which is totally permanent and they can't change or something which is totally outside of them is the essence of what it feels like to be alienated. Um, yeah. And the division between the individual and collective that you picked up on is another thing. The, the fact that we're separating city and soul in the first place <laughs> or separating the part from the whole, that is... Uh, that is the root of the philosophical problem here, the, the notion that part and whole are separate at all. Yeah, I think that, so what I was going to say, and I'm glad I let you complete that. What I was going to say is that I think that the problem at the heart of all of this is that, and this is where Durkheim is really useful. If you really think about you know, roles as, as needing to serve a function for stability, Right. If you think about Marx's theory of history and how Marx's theory of history is driven by this kind of need to increase the productive power, the, you know, the power of the productive forces in society hmm. uh, and the competitive need to do that, both to win out in trade and to win out in war. You know, huh. uh, that's the kind of reason why we have these roles, yeah. because they're necessary in those trade and war systems. Yeah. And that's why we have to have a society which produces a, a psychological lack, you know, to use the Lacanian term, 
know, psychological lack if we are not mm. in those roles, right? right? We have to reify the roles because if we don't reify them, uh, if we could actually be satisfied by not being in roles, then we would quickly develop to, into a very unproductive kind of society, which would not conform to the theory of history, not be competitive, and which would then lose out in the games of, of trade and right, war. Right, alienation is and productive. Would, and yeah. would cease to exist. Yeah. Right, alienation is productive. <laughs> uh, and anomie is productive. Yeah. Anomie in particular is productive. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, yeah. And, yeah. and for that reason... We can't expect alienation and anomie to bring an end to capitalism in the modern state because alienation and anomie are necessary psychological mechanisms by which people are disciplined into their roles. Yeah, yeah. And and disciplined into creating new roles and keeping the whole thing humming because as capitalism takes apart the roles, the entrepreneurs of roles who go out and make new ones, they're the ones who ultimately keep the thing going because- if you try to rigidly stick to roles that are changing, then there will be a major a major clash yeah. of some sort. You'll get some kind of major reactionary move towards Caesarism or something, right? But if you have entrepreneurs who make new roles, then the children of the people who are rigidly trying to defend the old roles, those people will find new roles in the roles that the role entrepreneurs are creating, mm. right? And so the anomie which drives people into entrepreneurship is the thing which ultimately keeps the whole thing moving. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, and even when you have a moment where the reactionary impulse wins out and there's an attempt to really rigidly defend the roles, if those roles are not competitive, if, if you're defending roles that are, not, are going away because they no longer allow you to compete, then you can't last very long with that kind of state because you'll lose out. If you try to stick rigidly to feudalism, You'll get out competed by the people who don't do that. Hmm. If you try to stick very rigidly to a form of capitalism which is uncompetitive, then you'll get out competed by those who who don't do that. And so you can't sustain the reactionary response in the long term. Hmm. The entrepreneurial response is the only one which can make the thing go forward, and therefore the anomie has to be generated to drive the entrepreneurial response. Because if people could somehow make their peace with being out of the game then the game would end. The system has got to make people dissatisfied with being out of the game. Yeah. And, and that will continue until we reach a point at which playing the game no longer has productive value. Yeah, yeah. Right? When we are at a point where playing these, these rigid roles no longer facilitates uh, competing at trade and war, then we will no longer ask people to do those things. And then people will have an, a, a real opportunity to not play the game at, at scale. Yeah. Yeah. And to engage in philosophical activity, which could lead them to more self-directed projects that are uh, you know, nonetheless coming out of and, and flourishing within uh, our social our social world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the... The inescapability of roles comes from the need for defined roles for production to work. Yeah, yeah, to, to manage uh, the forces of production and destruction in the competitive games of, yeah, as you say, trade right. and so I think that the turn toward alienation as a means of getting revolution in left-wing thought very much reflects an abandonment of the theory of history or a marginalization of it during uh, for the, the theorists who, who take it in this direction. Yeah. Uh, 
And I think especially for, for anarchists who were never very much interested in the theory of history to begin with. Hmm. And I, I, don't, I don't see how it can work. It just leads to reinscription because there, there is no real option to dispense with the roles while a society that dispenses with the roles will lose out in the, in the competitive game. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even if you do it for a moment, you'll then lose out in the competitive game. And, and that can mean many things. It can mean that the state's invaded. It can mean that there's a coup, uh, you know, maybe financed from outside. It can mean capital flight. Right. Uh, there are so many different ways in which the competitive logic can play out and kill off an attempt to break with it. Right, right. But that's what happens, that competitive logic plays out and kills off attempts to break with it. I wonder whether there's a tension I'm, between those logics that, well, tr it may be, you know, trade, capitalist trade may, of course, favor keeping uh, those things essential to capitalist trade. Um, it might be that in the future, that form, different forms of warfare may be more challenging to capitalism. Um, and I remember saying at the end of the last episode that it's likelier if if one ends first that um, that capitalism would end before uh, the modern state ends because capitalism is younger than the modern state, um, and so it's just as the universe has uh, more life ahead of it than the Earth does, um, and we can know that um, uh, or. or you guess that simply on the basis that the universe is um, a few times older than the Earth is. Um, in fact, <laughs> the proportions are actually pretty ridiculous for how much time the universe has a ahead of it. Um, and so the comparison doesn't quite work, but uh, the proportions don't really matter here. It's the simple fact that the modern state is older than um, capitalism is is likelier to have more time ahead of it uh, than capitalism does. And I think intuitively we can see this when we look at what trade does versus what warfare does. Uh, trade, as uh, Benjamin was describing, um, and particularly financially, financialized trade today, is often a way of keeping capitalism in place than a, a selective mechanism which might get you beyond capitalism. It would probably be, be some kind of warfare that gets you beyond Capitalism. Well, if you think about like how roles are created and, and destroyed, capitalism, if it ends and when it ends, that will be because it will run out of ability to create new roles, right? So capitalism destroys the roles through the, its process of creative destruction, and then it produces the entrepreneurial spirit, which creates new roles, right? That's how it keeps rolling, right? Yeah. But if capitalism were to reach a point where it could no longer create new roles because it was no longer productive to really use anybody in, in roles to speak of, then capitalism would have to end because it would no longer be able to create a set of roles consistent with employer-employee relations. Mm. The state, however, when the state gets into any kind of trouble, the state responds by making roles, very, very clear roles. The state responds by drafting large numbers of people into the military. Yeah, yeah. Or large numbers of people into the bureaucracy. The state responds by taking more control over the economy. The state responds to trouble by constricting the space for entrepreneurship and enlarging uh, its military to encompass more elements of the society. It militarizes society when it's in trouble. Mm. And in the course of militarizing a society, you create very defined roles. Mm. 
Mm. And that's in large part why during the World War period, capitalism became much more heavily regulated because the state expanded out into the economy for the purposes of waging the wars. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I think if capitalism for capitalism to end, it can only really end either because capitalism can no longer generate more roles or because of some kind of conflagration in which the needs of the modern state uh, become very pressing. Yes. And the modern state. As, as in capitalism. the world wars. Yeah. Because the modern state will then give people a bunch of roles which are non-entrepreneurial roles and restrict heavily the space for the entrepreneurial behavior, which regenerates capital. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's a mixture of those two things, stuff that's endogenous to capitalism and stuff that's somewhat exogenous to it. So the, 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 the contradictions of capitalism itself to develop, to develop the productive forces and the contradictions between capitalism and the modern state. Uh, yeah. Those two things. But I together. think the lesson that yeah. we've learned from you know Lenin and from other theorists who've been waiting for a war to end capitalism is that even a very very big bad war does not necessarily end capitalism no, because yeah. while the state's role is enlarged, in large part the reason the state's role is enlarged is to defend capitalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the state rarely completely extinguishes capitalism in its expansion. You know, and Hayek wrote the Road to Serfdom. In 1944, Hayek was afraid that the war mobilization of the 40s would just prevail forever and that the state would never let capitalism loose again, that it would remain in this heavily dominant position. And while it's true that the state played a larger role in, in uh, a larger, more active role in the economy in the post-war era than it had done prior to the world wars, it is still the case that capital was able to wriggle out from under that, in part because the state was not trying to prevent that from happening. Indeed, right from the beginning, the state was trying to gradually allow capital more room to move through GATT and through the push for uh, reduction of, of uh, trade restrictions. Mm. There, there was always uh, an aim to make things more mobile and more open again, uh, to gradually do that in a careful and, and slow way to make sure that it would be well-regulated and within limits. But the entrepreneurial spirit breaks limits. It wants to destroy old roles, old terminologies, and create new stuff. Mm. Mm. And so I think it, not just one world war, but two world wars were not enough to cause capitalism to end. So yeah. I think that ultimately, while people are always looking for a quicker way out of it, until capitalism reaches a point where it can't make new roles, it's very hard to see how it can end. Yeah. I guess one one difference between the the two systems of this kind of dual system of um modernity to to draw a bit on uh Frankel's argument that the modern state is a dual state um and perhaps it's also a dual system between the modern state and capitalism in this entangled relationship. Uh the Modern state, as Francis Fukuyama argues, is premised first and foremostly on a bureaucracy, uh, specifically Weberian bureaucracy, as conceived by Max Weber, um, of impersonal rules um, that um, impose on individuals in a, as Durkheim might say, very fatalistic uh, 
way. Um, but also perhaps uh, um, a way that is uh, quite alienating because the rules are very are so very impersonal, so very detached. Um, and in this way, excessive regulation goes hand in hand with insufficient social integration, uh, insufficient social ties that bind, and excessive rules imposed um, on individuals. Uh, and indeed, also with insufficient um, regulation, because people find in this situation that they aren't setting rules and that these rules are coming from this impersonal source that they can't quite understand. Um, and so that there's a lot of um, alienation at play in bureaucracy. But the other thing going on, of course, is the market uh, system. Um, and if bureaucracy is the key institution of the modern state, the market is, of course, the key institution of capitalism. And the market is a bit like bureaucracy in being highly impersonal. Unlike uh, uh, another institution, the family, a highly personal, uh, more local institution, um, where the ties that bind and the rules that govern are such that um, arguably, I think Durkheim might say, uh, the likelihood of anomic or egoistic suicide is uh, lower. Um, though there is, I think Durkheim might argue, some perhaps greater proclivity towards uh, fatalistic um, or altruistic suicides, especially. Um, though Durkheim is also saying that the modern world as a whole produces this cycle between deficiency and excess. And so the market and the state can um, create these different kinds of suicide too. Um, and I, I guess one thing is that while the market seems to be an institution that has varied in significance over time, um, I think it's quite clear how bureaucracy, even before the rise of uh, the modern market system, played a very important role um, in the ancient world. I guess markets also did too. And there's a sense in which when we're talking about the modern politics and modern economics, we're talking about something that began in the ancient world and in prehistory and has developed since then into something um, more intensive, more impersonal, um, more abstract, more robotic, um, and more imposing and more distant from people. Um, and it's easy to see how individualism could arise in this situation because um, if the structures which we have are so distant and so abstract, then it's easy to say, oh, well, maybe the structures don't matter. Maybe we should retreat to the individual. But this, of course, is a fallacy because the structures are what make this situation possible. And so retreating to the individual is just to accept the structures that we have and not to actually yeah, challenge the structures them. are what make the individual. Right. Individualism is like so a paralytic in this way. Right. It stops social change. It doesn't advance social change. <laughs> Right, yeah. because individualism takes as given the set of forces which construct the individual. Those forces are so remote that they're treated as part of nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's conceivable that all three institutions will last for quite a long time. Some kind of market bureaucracy uh, and family will last for a long time. Now, it's interesting how Plato models his Republic off uh, uh, the 
abolition of um, private property and private family. Um, and it's not clear what really happens with bureaucracy or administration in the state, though there is a division of labour. So I guess that is um, something anticipating uh, Well, the kind of bureaucracy that we, we would associate with ancient empires would be rather foreign for Plato, given the scale of Greek city-states. They're much, much smaller. Yes, though I guess the division of labour is the prototype. empires. Of all this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And yeah, even the ancient modern distinction that we use a lot to try to help people break out of uh, some of the modern terminology and see alternative ways of thinking about things is a, a construct that we use pedagogically. But there, there is no strict separation. You can find a lot of commonalities between certain threads within ancient thought and more contemporary ideas especially once you get into the periods of high empires. Yeah. Uh, the Han China, the Roman Empire, there are threads of this of this kind. Uh, mm. There there are threads that are a little bit more individual, like the Stoics for instance, which I, I think are among the more individualistic schools of of ancient thought insofar as the Stoics do not think that your virtue is dependent on the community. Mm. They want to assert that everything depends entirely on you and your attitude, and yeah, uh, you know, and that your attitude is up to you, and it doesn't matter where you come from. And that's part of what's very appealing about Stoicism to modern uh, young people who see as a social system that is not something they can easily change, and therefore want to believe that they can will their way through it in some in some fashion. Yeah. Yeah, and of course they want to believe that whatever conditions they're under, those conditions don't ultimately constrain them because they are not in position to remedy those conditions. Yeah, I guess there's one reaction that says that that this alienation goes back to the rise of agriculture and the fall of hunter gatherer societies, uh, because since then this line of argument would run. Uh, we've lost what it means to be human as we alienate um, not just uh, aspects of ourselves, but we, we start with alienating um, the rest of nature from ourselves by trying to impose impose humanity as a master over the natural world rather than as a, a cohabitant and by further making divisions within society to manage this. And the production of a surplus arising from agriculture allows you to have a, a class structure um, um, more unequal than that which would obtain in a hunter-gatherer society. And so a lot of the springs of uh, alienation that uh, Marx, Durkheim, Lukács identify uh, aren't just particular to the modern world, they go back to some processes beginning a long time ago. And indeed, in Plato's Republic, this is kind of what he argues, that the fall of the first city, which Glaucon uh, labels a city of pigs, uh, where there isn't a surplus um, produced, people only produce what they need, and they're relating to each other um, on the basis of uh, condition of relative social equality. They are trading in this first city of Plato's, but there isn't the kind of class system that you would usually associate with 
productive agricultural or indeed uh, industrial societies. But this city, of course, falls with the production of a surplus that leads people to pursue luxuries. And uh, and this, this also includes Callipolis, because yes. for Plato, Callipolis decays when private property is introduced in a compromise with the uh, bronze and iron types, with the, with the producers. Yes. Uh, private property is introduced and slavery is introduced at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's easy to argue, as Plato does, that Callipolis is more attainable than the first city, the city of pigs, um, which is a city of people, by the way. Um, it's only Glaucon who labels it a city of pigs because they don't have the luxuries and uh, cakes and perfumes that he thinks um, people should desire and do desire. Um, but at the same time, the conditions of Callipolis, as we've just been discussing, are conditions which don't longer obtain. Um, that a kind of city without... Um, without a um, modern bureaucracy, without a modern market, um, and uh, in Plato's case, without um, without separate families, is a city which is almost um, unimaginable, and at least, at the very least, unattainable um, under, under modern circumstances. And so we're left in a situation where both uh, the first city, which Plato describes, and Callipolis, can't be attained, and we're left in a situation where um, you know people can speculate about future utopias and places they think we can go to to escape from alienation. But at the end of the day, there isn't an alternative which uh, is immediately present that we can say, "Oh, that's the way out." And so we're left in a bit of a in a bit of a trap. Um, and of course, Marx tried to console people by saying, oh, look, we can't imagine exactly what the utopia will look like. No blueprints, please. Just get on with doing the work of proletarian revolution. But of course, that's only really reassuring if we know there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if there isn't, then uh, there's a real risk that you know changes could be done that lead us nowhere. But of course, the reply might be, well, we might as well try. Well, that's why in in the early in its early manifestation, Marxism is is a very hope giving theory. I talked about it as a very sad and and difficult and painful theory, but in its earlier manifestations, it gives a lot of hope because it says that all of this is going to lead to a position of abundance where you are able to dispense with the rigid roles. Yeah, but as we've discovered, it's not so simple and straightforward as that. I think capitalism yeah. is very adaptive and very capable of inventing new roles and new systems of roles. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't it's not something that can be very easily taken apart even when you have a lot of factors which would seem to favor it coming apart. I think maybe to apply the lessons from alienation and anime to this problem that maybe we can say that the problem is this imbalance and that the way out is through trying to balance things a bit more because um, what alienation and anime rest upon um, is an imbalance between different things resting on a division between them. Uh, and maybe the, the division between uh, tweaking things to make um, particular aspects of the world better, and on the other hand, changing everything to create a utopia is a false division, and that what we're looking for is somewhere in between, um, and some kind of balance between um, 
large and small scale change and long and short term prospects for that change. And trying to find that balance between utopia and reality is the best we can do in this situation. Because anything else is um, not just accepting um, the state of affairs, but entrenching the swinging of the pendulum from extreme to extreme. And to try to find a balance um, between an attitude of um, accepting things as they are uh, and a desire to change them, a kind of balance between conservatism and radicalism, uh, is the really the only way that we can escape from um, or at least not escape from alienation and anime, because that's not possible for anybody in the system, but to try to create the conditions under which it might be possible to um, get out is by at least trying to secure well, a balance. I think, I think it's when you're studying political theory, if you're in a position to study it, if you have the material conditions which allow you to do that, then... You can take a step back and, and start looking at some of these balances. But of course, a lot of political theorists, as we've discussed, tend to get hyper-focused on one particular thing. They're not necessarily balancing types. Yeah. And a lot of regular people are under this a system which needs them to not do that, which needs them to respond by going after roles and- mm creating roles and looking for satisfaction in roles. Uh, and when you're when we're political theorists, we are able to to be to some degree a little bit shielded from some of that insofar as the kinds of jobs open to political theorists continue to provide a level of stability. But the the problem is and you know the podcast we can talk about this stuff and we can introduce people to, to some of these ideas. But the fundamental problem is that the system needs people to be insecure. Mm -hmm. And then it needs people to respond to insecurity by pursuing catharsis. And then it gives people false ways of getting, of getting the catharsis, ways that they think they'll get it that aren't real. And they want to believe that they are getting the catharsis. So once they get into a role, they will tell themselves that the role is who they are and it satisfies them. And I think that people go through an, a cycle of switching between anomie and alienation, where they don't have a role, they get a role, they try to identify with the role, make the role themselves. They find that role eventually dissatisfying. They can't buy it. And then on top of that, the role is taken from them and disrupted and destroyed. Mm. And then they have to restart the process of finding a new role, either because they tire of it or because it's taken from them. They're thrown back into the anomie, and then they need another role again. Yeah, yeah. And people are kept in this psychological treadmill where every way of dealing with the problem that's in front of them just creates a different version of the same problem. Yeah, yeah. And what ties them together is the egoism, which stems from the insufficiency of social ties. It's the lack. It's yeah. it's the the need to to find satisfaction outside through something else, something external. Yeah, and what causes ex right? what causes egoism is exploitation at heart. It's the separation of people from one another in the market system in which we live. Um, well, and under capitalism, the only way to really get out of it, to really get out of it, 
is to engage in a kind of re- religious lifestyle. Yeah. Which is not something which is pra- practicable at scale. And that kind of lifestyle is, if some of the earlier theorists of alienation are right, um, might also be something that is just another form of alienation because capitalism is not the first system to alienate people from who they really are. Um, there are other systems well, right. that I mean, also do within, that. Within the discussions of, of religious lifestyles, there is much criticism of people trying to find a way out by going to religious practices uh, and then reifying the religious practices as themselves a kind of goal or or something to be obtained or achieved or a way of getting one up on other people or gaining some kind of status through being viewed as a spiritual or mystic person or leader or revered figure. A lot mm. of the time when people come to meditative practice or philosophical practice or you know, whether it's Neoplatonism or Buddhism or whatever, uh, Christianity or whatever it might be, they bring the same kind of, of role pursuit into the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, though I, I do think there are some people who are able to kind of withdraw from society and in the course of withdrawing from society, find some solace in really just dispensing with social concerns, it's not scalable. And it also leaves everyone else behind. When someone does that, uh, they are not helping the other people who can't do that. They are necessarily engaging in an activity which is to some degree parasitic on large numbers of people who continue to not do that. Mm. And that, I think, part of the frustration I've always had with asceticism is that asceticism involves you nonetheless, even if you are self-sufficient economically, you know, you're, you're growing your own food or, or living on your own, you are not self-sufficient from a defense standpoint. Your ability to roam around the world without being subject to violence is still contingent on modern states. Uh, nobody is really able to be self-sufficient. And the ascetic in trying to be self-sufficient or to have a kind of self-sufficient spiritual community is still ultimately dependent on the order which is provided by capitalism in the modern state. Yeah. And therefore benefits from that order while feigning to be outside it. Yeah. And so that's always been been very dissatisfying for me as a response. And it, it seems to be kind of, I think it does reify the, the individual because it's privileging the individual uh a spiritual person's experience of life, yeah, over the over the making any kind of difference for everybody, mm. and it's why I've always liked that. You know, Plato says that after you get out of the cave, you have to go back into the cave. Even though go, going back into the cave means that you're going to be surrounded by the images yeah. and you're not going to enjoy the light, and you're you're it's going to disadvantage you in lots of ways psychologically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get a, By yeah. going back into the cave, yeah. you are potentially able to help other people. And if if there's really value in any kind of philosophical or spiritual tradition, that value uh, surely cannot be just reserved to the individual practitioner. And any spiritual or religious tradition which permits individual practitioners to uh, take that kind of approach is is not interested in of any kind of better world or better society, but just in 
uh, in individuals. And I think that conflicts heavily with the ostensible metaphysics of those traditions. It's kind of ironic that as you get these more impersonal structures, you get this worship of of the individual person. Um, Of course, it's because you've got this more impersonal structure um, of capitalism and the modern state. The modern state being this this big bureaucracy and capitalism, this big market, neither of which are particularly close to people, both of which are very distant to people uh, and don't feel very personal. Um, whereas um, the, the, the family is something that people often hold on to as something that's, that, that's real um, and that feels more, more personal. And perhaps the kind of structures that we need to look for in the future are structures that are... Uh, neither um, as impersonal and abstract as uh, bureaucracies and markets, nor as personal and local as uh, families, because those are two small units from which to make change. It's something in between these two levels, something that ties together personality and impersonality, because a lot of the problems that we've got in the modern world stem from Seeing the state purely as a as a Hobbesian as a Hobbesian machine, um, purely as a thing, uh, rather than appreciating um, its personality too, and appreciating how um, you know self and other, how personality and impersonality are tied up with one another because nothing's really separate at heart. Nothing's really divided. All division is surface division. And so the best we can do is to try to balance different things until we can um, bring things back together again. Yeah. And and the celebration of, of the Sovereign as machine versus the celebration of the charismatic leader figure, yeah, are kind of two sides of the same thing. Yes. Either the the conceiving of this is either a totally impersonal thing or a totally personal thing, in which you have one uh, figure who is cathartically uh, satisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that makes sense I, of the yeah. superhero type figure who who breaks through all of that. That, that it's another one of those swings you know another one of those dichotomous dualistic yeah. swings and it also gets us back to weber and how weber both gave us uh, an amazing analysis of bureaucracy but also as we've analyzed on the previous episode um a great analysis of um charismatic leadership um yeah, and speaking of Weber, we're we're going to come back to Weber next time, yeah. and we're going to do some of this Weber uh, Weber stuff on bureaucracy because we did the charismatic leadership with the Caesar Weber and Charisma episode. We're going to do some Weber on bureaucracy, mm. and uh, spend a little bit of time on that before we do the late Frankfurt School episode that we've been promising for a while. We're going to do a little Weber first because Weber is in and around this time period, and um, I think it'd be fun to to spend a little bit more time with a different aspect of his thought. Yeah. So we're going to do a little bit of that. And at this point, we probably should be wrapping up. So uh, thank you guys for listening. You can, of course, uh, support the podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash political theory 101, all lowercase, no space. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Anything, anything to add before we go, Edmund? 
I I think that that covers all the bases. And if we did want to cover a- other aspects of Weber that listeners may be interested in hearing, um, there are a few things which I think are quite pertinent to political theory which we could cover, um, like his theory of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, uh, which might, in a sense, tie together the analysis of capitalism that Weber has with his superb analysis of bureaucracy in the modern state. Yeah, at one point we had an interesting discussion, uh, just Edmund and I individually, uh, off the air about Weber and and comparing him with Aristotle. I, I vaguely remember that. Maybe that will come up again mm, too. Yeah. All kinds of fun stuff to do there. Yeah. So we'll do all of that. Uh, and uh, thank you guys. And uh, by the way, do feel free to check out our Q&A episode for patrons that we recently put up. Uh, we, we do about two of those a year, or at least that's what we're committed to doing. So do feel free to check that out on, on the Patreon. Thank you guys again, and have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.